Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 192, and today's guest is Laura Speakerman, co-founder and chief revenue officer of Alloy. The fintech industry has been blowing up over the past few years with lots of innovative advances and solutions. From digital products geared towards consumers like Robinhood and Lemonade, which logged a very successful IPO back in July, to more of a foundational tech layer with platforms like Stripe for online payments and Plaid that was acquired by Visa for a reported $5.3 billion. Alloy is right in the sweet spot of this rapidly growing fintech industry as they are providing the identity operating system for the financial services industry and the company just announced a $40 million Series B round of funding. Fraud detection has always been a challenge for banks, but the problem has only grown more severe due to the pandemic, which has definitely shifted consumers' behavior. Their solution makes it easy for financial services companies to quickly and safely onboard and manage more customers. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics like the explosion of the fintech industry and what the future holds for financial services companies, Laura's background, including her original interest in law school, to how she ended up as the first employee at a fintech startup, a deep dive into Alloy and how their platform is helping financial services companies with a much needed solution, what it was like raising venture capital during a pandemic, advice on building a diverse team, and so much more. Okay, quick side note, we've recently launched a new video section on VentureFizz. Based on all the great content that we've been creating, it was time that these videos had their own home on VentureFizz. You'll find all the episodes from our two flagship video series, that being CXO Briefing and Inside, plus you'll also find career and hiring advice videos. Our goal for this section is to help you with your job search by discovering companies and learning about their culture. Make sure you check it out by going to VentureFizz.com backslash videos. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Laura. Laura, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So I'm excited to talk to you because uh, you are a co-founder and chief revenue officer of a rapidly growing fintech company called Alloy. And the fintech industry is insane right now. There's so much activity going on. There's lots of great companies that are going public, raising capital. And this was an industry that I can't remember exactly when, but it wasn't too long ago. It was kind of like, kind of there, but the excitement wasn't as great as it, as it is now. So talk about the fintech industry. Like, obviously your space, we're going to talk about, there's a lot of excitement there, but just as a whole, the industry is, you know, there's a lot of excitement. So what, what are you excited about in, in fintech? Yeah, I think what's exciting is we've seen this, you know, five or 10 year evolution where consumer fintech was really exciting at some point, right? We were all starting to transact on our phones. Think about like Venmo, maybe around sort of the earlier point there. I guess that was about 10 years ago um, and and sort of has evolved since then, right? Where, where consumers are able to um, trade stocks open accounts, do all sorts of stuff online on their phones. And that's, that's been pretty exciting. I think there was a, a, a time where that came, or, or people expected it to come to a little bit of a head because they were competing so directly with the legacy providers, with the banks themselves. And um, ultimately, I think what we saw was that we didn't see this crazy sort of um, competition or winner takes all. We saw, in fact, this uh, rebundling that was happening after the unbundling. And that has happened over the last, um, you know, three or four years. And I think it's been really exciting from a consumer perspective because now you have like even better um, products and services from both 
worlds, right, from both kind of new and um, legacy providers, and hopefully that continues. But I think what we've been really excited about is that the market has now shifted um, in two ways. One, we're seeing that there's a sort of banking as a service phenomenon happening in fintech, where you're not just kind of offering this standalone, um, you know, new fintech company or digital product being launched out of a big bank. There's this sort of banking as a service element where you can bring banking or financial services into some other non-banking application. So in the last couple of years, we've seen the, the rise of API platforms, um, banks, traditional banks, often community banks, like billion dollar asset size banks, which to put in context is very small, partnering with fintech companies and offering their fintech charter and their services and their kind of you know regulatory expertise to be able to bring banking products to to non-banking things. So you could think of like a um, you know anything that's taking payments online. So that could be like a mind body online, right? Where you go to schedule your your yoga classes. That type of service can now actually offer loans, payments, all sorts of things to its merchant consumer, its merchant clients, as well as to the end consumers. So we've been really excited about that. The other thing that's even more recent, and I think very exciting and has been really hot recently is B2B FinTech, which like it's the biggest snooze fest in the world in many ways and has been for a long time, even when we were doing it. Um, I won't try to convince you it's, it, it hasn't been, uh, but the last like six months has just demonstrated complete sort of investment and um, innovation in B2B FinTech. So in kind of core infrastructure and in modernizing the payments rails and um, the ledger systems and all sorts of stuff that these these systems that all the kind of end applications are built on top of. I mean, there's so much going on, which is really exciting. And like you said, it does benefit the consumer, but now the B2B side, which is such a massive, massive market opportunity. So, uh, but before we get into what you're up to with your current company, let's talk about your background. So talk about, you know, even going way back, like where did you grow up? What were you like as a child? Yeah. Yeah. I grew up in Berkeley, California. Um, not too far from where I am right now. I, uh, I was a very quiet child. I was not one of those, um, you read about a lot of entrepreneurs who were like always hustling as a kid and like selling lots of stuff and they were gregarious and that was not me at all. <laughs> I was sort of this like bookish, um, quiet kid. I grew up, uh, with a single mom. Um, my mom, my, uh, father passed away when I was young. So I kind of grew up in the company of a lot of adults. So my, my mom would, she was working full time. And so I would spend a lot of time with adults and learned how to um, both be with adults and also entertain myself. Um, so I was pretty, I was pretty uh, kind of content on my own, I think. <laughs> and, um, you know, had a, a small little universe. I read a lot. Um, yeah. And then I, I, I also, I went to French school growing up, which I think was sort of important for me because it exposed me to a lot of different things outside my tiny little bubble. And my bubble was really tiny. I think growing up, I, I was like very insulated. Um, so that kind of started exposing me to the outside world and to other cultures. And um, I actually would give it, give that credit in some ways for bringing me to um, want to look at, it was sort of brought me to West Africa eventually because I wanted to to study French there and, and that's what got me into FinTech ultimately. Sort of a very secure this long path, but but I will I will give that credit. 
And I, I did notice when I was preparing for this interview, your experience with the micropayments world. I'm like, oh, wow, that was such a foray into fintech at that earlier stage where you know, it makes sense how you got into that industry. Uh, so, so what did you do after school? Like, what were some of the initial you know, first jobs? Yeah, my first job after school, uh, so I was very much on a law school track. I just didn't know what kinds of, I mean, similar to, I had no idea what entrepreneurship was like. I just thought, you know, you, if you're smart, you go to law school. If you're driven, you go to law school. So that's what I did. Um, I, I was on the law school path. I did internships in college, um, kind of in the legal field, and then uh, joined a, a white collar criminal defense law firm after I graduated. It ended up being, I, I was sort of unsure about the opportunity because I graduated during the financial crisis in, in 2008. Um, so there's a lot of financial crime going on, as you can imagine. And I thought like, who am I gonna be like working on, you know, representing and is this gonna be sort of despicable? And it actually ended up being so much fun and um, especially for a paralegal job, it was it was really an interesting time to be involved. I got to learn about all sorts of weird uh, financial instruments that I had never heard of. Um, this is in the time of you know credit default swaps and all sorts of nefarious things going on, and uh, just really enjoyed it. I ultimately decided I, I got into law school and started you know kind of looking at taking out loans, and I realized it's so expensive and I better really, really want to do this. And I better really want to make a lot of money after I graduate, if I'm going to spend this kind of money for an education. So I ended up deciding not to do it. And um, I thought I had to sort of go back to square one and say, what else, what other kinds of jobs exist? <laughs> I didn't really know what, what do I like doing? Um, and I had really enjoyed learning about microfinance in particular. And I'd also enjoyed at this kind of paralegal job learning about finance. Um, I knew I didn't want to be in, fi in finance, meaning, you know, working at a big investment bank or something, but I, I just enjoyed sort of the, the financial services for people aspect and what it could do. And so I found, um, I found these two guys on the internet who had started a company. They were building a software platform that was, taking what existed in Kenya at the time, which was the M-Pesa rails. Um, and M-Pesa is effectively a, a system used by something like more than three quarters of adult Kenyans, even back in 2010, I think, or 2011 when I did this, where um, it's sort of like the equivalent of if, if Verizon, you know, the big telco here offered Venmo, offered P2P payments. So that, that's been used in, in, in East Africa for a long time. And so at the time we were trying to extend that service to merchants. So if you were a barbershop or in, in sort of the initial use case, a microfinance institution, you could extend credit and collect payments via M-Pesa. And this was instead of people having to, you know, borrowers having to travel six hours by Matatu to be able to repay their loan every two weeks, um, leave their place of business, sort of risk getting robbed, all the things that go with that. And so uh, I was just really taken with that idea at the time, particularly with the ubiquity of mobile phones and that this country was able to leapfrog, like they didn't have bank accounts, they didn't even have, um, you know, any sort of any way of, of really paying people other than cash, but being able to leapfrog into this more modern system that we had in the United States. So I found these two guys and I said, can I join you? Can I join you and like try to build a business? And um, he said, sure. And we, we started um, building a business plan and um, raising funds and, finding our first couple of customers.
And, and how did you find these entrepreneurs? Was it uh, like, like, were you introduced to them? Was it? A- yeah. No, I think I literally Google. I don't even, I don't know. This is one of my um, like sort of, you know, I'm, I'm not entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial in many uh, aspects, but I am. <laughs> I'll just sort of find people online and, and hunt them down um, and convince them to talk to me. So I think I literally had Googled, you know, microfinance technologies or something um, and just found them. And they were, at the time they were building uh, the business or, or sort of in an incubator called the Unreasonable Institute out of Colorado. Um, and that's, that's where I tracked them down. They had yet to move to Kenya. So we all kind of went over there together. Wow. And then, cause that was very much a leap of faith of you just finding this startup, these founders and joining as yeah. the first employee, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. It was just me and the two of them. And we shared a, a little apartment there and um, yeah, started it from scratch. So what'd you do after that? After that, I, uh, I came back to the U S um, they, we closed the first round of funding for that company and um, things were off to a good you know, good place there. I joined an investment firm here in, in the Bay Area called Imprint Capital. Now it was acquired by Goldman Sachs, but at the time was independent. Um, and I joined as the kind of first analyst working on emerging market stuff. So for them, that meant um, primarily investing in private equity and venture capital funds, some direct into emerging markets companies, uh, companies and funds that had a social or environmental return in addition to the financial return. And then after that is where you actually ended up meeting your your co-founders, right? So Knox Payments. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. What, what was Knox Payments? It was a an ACH company um, that was trying to mitigate that kind of three to five day settlement period you have with ACH transactions. So if you're trying to get your money in or get money out, it always takes a couple of days. And this was a way of um, of kind of instantly doing ACH transactions. Uh, particularly for financial service applications, it made a lot of sense. So I joined to lead um, kind of business development there and it is where I met my uh, my current co-founders. All right, well, that's a perfect segue. So Alloy, so uh, what does the company do? And like, you know, how, how did you go about, you know, partnering up with your co-founders to say, hey, we're going to, you know, start a business together? Yeah, so at the previous company, we had seen that onboarding was challenging in financial services and ACH was certainly a part of that. But what we noticed over and over was that identity was a a, a probably an equally large problem, if not larger, where users were trying to sign up for investment accounts, Bitcoin wallets, uh, bank accounts, and roughly half the time they were being sent to a manual review process. So call our call center, fax in documents, stuff that users just don't want to do and they drop out of the process. Typically about 80% drop out once they have one of those interventions. Um, And so what we saw was that this was a very expensive problem because you've already, you as the FinTech company or the bank have already paid a bunch of money to acquire this customer. These are very expensive, um, you know, customer acquisition cost products. And you then have this expensive process you're doing where a human is like manually reviewing all sorts of documents and you end up with a bad customer experience too. So it's sort of this like lose-lose situation. We saw that happening and we said, you know, I think we can fix this because the status quo is just so bad. The reason it's so bad is people are checking one source of data. So a bank or a fintech company might be checking one public record source and there's no centralized government um, repository of data you can tap into. So we're relying on these third-party services and that third-party service is not going to know that you moved 
three months ago. And so your address isn't gonna match your name, isn't gonna match your social security number, isn't gonna match your date of birth. And that's what was really causing this problem primarily. Um, in addition to the fact that just digital financial services are taking off and we built this entire system around sitting in a bank branch and being able to show someone their ID sitting across from them just doesn't translate to digital. And so we saw that problem and said, hey, I think we can, you know, I think we can build something better. We actually initially tried to find something to buy. We said there must be like the stripe for identity. There must be the pod for identity, but there wasn't. So we set out um, to build that ourselves. We uh, was kind of, there, there are now four of us from Alloy who all, all left um, that company together to, to start this. And we're still following the same problem. So it's still this kind of API driven approach to identity verification in the financial services market. And like, like, how did you get started? Because it did seem like this is a problem. There's you know, a recognized opportunity in the marketplace, but really tough one to solve, right? As far as building out the platform yeah. and having these APIs and connecting with external data partners. So how did you even like get started? <laughs> it's one where I'm so glad we didn't know how hard this was because I don't think we ever would have done it. Um, and we didn't have deep roots in banking, we didn't even have shallow roots in banking, candidly. Um, and I'm so glad we didn't again, because I think that would have stopped us before we started. So we all thought like, you know, this naive idea of like, why, does, how has no one built the plaid for identity or the stripe for identity uh, helped us because we were like, this is easy. <laughs> like why, why has no one else done this? And then of course it's not easy at all. And we, we toiled for a long time before we launched a product. Um, but we were, it was, it was great for us. So we ended up, being able to, um, you know, identify the problem, talk to a bunch of fintech developers who were our sort of first core use case was like, if we were the ultimate, if we were sort of the, the prototypical customers, we knew a bunch of others like us. So let's go talk to them and see what they need. So we built um, kind of a, a fintech developer friendly API. Eventually we met a bank that, um, this was during we, our time at Techstars. We did a, the July 2015 Techstars program. And it was there that we met a bank that was very early in trying to work with fintech companies and sort of work with APIs. And they really informed our product roadmap and helped us build what became a, a bank grade product. Um, it still took us a long time, but that was where we got started with saying, hey, let's just build, let's build for fintech, but, but let's build across kind of the edge cases where they're also partnering with banks and, and making sure banks are comfortable with this because we know that that's sort of where things are headed. Um, we weren't building this for Bank of America first, but we knew that we wanted to like make it make it something that compliance officers and risk people and um, data security people all felt comfortable with. So we overinvested very early in some of those core components, which was very expensive, but ultimately quite like very worthwhile. Now, how about once you felt like, okay, we have a product now, um, you know, the early adopter customers, like how did you convince, like, cause this is a very important piece of the equation. Um, it is, yeah. So how did you get the early adopter customers to say, yeah, let's let's give Alloy a shot? Yeah, I think um, having, people were desperate for this product, so part of it's just like they needed a solution. I think especially FinTech developers where the alternative, if you weren't working with us, the alternative is going to build a version like this yourself, which in order to get all of the data connections you need um, requires you know, money, uh, security audits that are pretty crazy, um, a year's worth of time of negotiating and going through this entire process. 
and, and delaying your product launch because of that, right? So, so this is sort of a fundamental step to going live because it has to do with compliance and fraud and you just have to do it. It's, not, it's a sort of a non-negotiable. And so I think that alternative was so bad that it meant you know, they were willing to try anything. Um, and I think, I think by virtue of, you know, especially my, my co-founder, Tommy, our CEO, is really uh, great at listening to our clients. And so I think for him early on listening to in particular, these, these banks that were really um, trying to work with fintech companies and trying to figure out how to use our API to do that and what, we, what features we need to build. There was just a really tight um, and very proactive feedback loop that I think made our product like 10 times better, even in the very, very early days. Um, but a lot of it had to do with really kind of investing in heavily in data security and, and all that stuff that, that really mattered and demonstrated that even though we didn't have long careers in banking or compliance, that we were serious about this, that we were going to treat their data, their use cases, their clients very, very seriously. Now, now how big of a problem is this? Like, you know, we're recording this in the middle of a pandemic, so no one's going to a branch to open up an account. They're doing it online. But even before this, like how big of this was a problem? Like, you know, uh, when, you know, COVID first hit, I, I watched, binge watched all of Ozark, right? Yeah, <laughs> which was amazing. I still haven't seen it, but I keep hearing I should. Oh, you should. You, to, you totally yeah. should. Yeah, I mean, because yeah. that's this whole thing, money laundering. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so, how much was? It, I mean, how much of this fraud is going on with people creating these fake accounts? I mean, apparently, it's yeah. a massive thing. It is, yeah. So even before the pandemic, um, you know, fraud online is huge. It's if and especially if you're in financial services, the the sort of you know the what you can what you can take away from fraud are pretty big sums of money. Um, and there are different types of fraud at different times that we see pop up. I think one of the hot topics everyone has right now is synthetic identity fraud, where someone builds up a fake identity that, that looks very real and they get it into the, the credit bureaus so or sort of the official system uh, or semi-official system kind of sanctioned by the, by the US where we have these three credit bureaus that kind of own all of our data. You get it into those bureaus. So, this, so you could create this fake account that starts to build a credit history. Exactly, exactly. So you start small. The way to do it is you start small. You build, uh, you take out some sort of like small, you know, um, account somewhere like a, a a cable account, and you pay your bill every month. And it's small, but it builds up and eventually gets reported into the credit bureau system. And then you kind of keep going. Maybe you take out a, a bigger line of credit somewhere else, and you continue to pay pay it pay it back every month um, and you look like you're a really good customer but you don't exist uh, and then eventually you do what's called bust out where you take out a $50,000 loan whatever the big take is and then you're gone and so we that's been cropping up and, and you can just see you know if you're able to get that type of money in one go and not that it's no work it's certainly work involved in building up that fake account these people are very uh, hardworking, um, but it's it's just a huge problem. Um, so it's it's a large and very uh, kind of nuanced problem. So e-commerce fraud solutions don't really meet the needs of, of financial services fraud. They're, they just look very different. And then in the pandemic, people were shifting online um, and these financial institutions weren't necessarily prepared from day one for what that meant, right? If you were doing 90%, 95% of your traffic was in branch or even call center, now you're migrating it to digital, um, you have to learn very quickly how to deal with that, right? With what, what, is bad, what do bad guys look like? What do good guys look like? Um, and there's a lot of gray area in between. 
So there's these acronyms I discovered, uh, KYC, know your customer, and then uh, AML, which was anti-money laundering. So what are those acronyms about? Like, what, like how do they play into this whole industry? Yeah. So know your customer and anti-money laundering. Um, they've been, those concepts have been around for a while. The Patriot Act is really, um, and, and sort of Bank Secrecy Act, which was in the 70s, and then Patriot Act uh, in the last 20 years, were what sort of solidified these concepts. Um, what's interesting about them is that they're not super prescriptive. So the government doesn't tell you exactly how to verify an identity. They don't say you have to look at this exact type of document or know exactly this person's social security number matches with their date of birth. Um, it's, a, it's more nuanced than that. It's a little bit more open-ended than that, which makes it hard to follow, of course, um, and, and made harder by the fact that these are, you're relying on digital sources of data. Again, you can't just look at someone's driver's license in a bank branch anymore. So the, uh, the sort of acronyms generally just mean, do your best to figure out who this person is and are they, are they real and do all these elements match? And then even if they're real and the elements match because you know, it really is you, uh, are they on a list of bad actors that we need to be aware of, right? Have they been of associated with something nefarious going on before have they been um, associated with money laundering before all sorts of stuff so you're sort of doing various checks um that range from just like is this a totally fake identity like synthetic to okay they're real but like do we really want to do business with them and with your platform i mean this is all automated so as a consumer i can go to a bank online fill out the account information and instantaneous the the bank's going to be able to detect whether this is a fraudulent account that's right. Much more frequently using our platform, they're able to instantly verify you. They can match all the information and say, yep, we're pretty sure this is the guy. And then they're able, and then because you're being instantly approved, right, in, in three seconds or whatever, then you're much more likely to actually become a customer. So finish that application process. And you're much more likely to do things like fund your deposit account at a higher level. So you actually become a better customer too. Um, and And then on the kind of back office side, uh, you're, they're also, these companies are experiencing much less fraud and they have much lower back office costs because they don't have to manually review all of the documentation. So how, how does the business work? Like how did you uh, figure out, you know, the, the actual business model of this? Uh, Cause it's, you know, it's, a, it's an API platform. Yeah, we always knew we wanted to be API first um, from a user perspective, right? Like thinking about who was gonna be integrating this. We also, we built this for who we were, candidly. We built this for people who wanted a really good both customer experience um, and also developer experience or kind of product experience. We didn't build this initially for compliance people, risk people, back office folks, because we just didn't know them. Um, and so I think the business model actually aligned really well for that, where we were thinking about this as how do you deliver the best customer experience and how do you just get the most people through your funnel? Um, and that meant that the API model was great for that. So our, our business model is based on um, usage, you know, SaaS and, and usage. And uh, it's, it's not sort of as, it's in contrast to a lot of the financial services models that are out there. Um, the legacy core systems, for example, which are just huge chunky implementation fees and, and licensing fees and, you know, they're not cloud-based. So there's sort of like these crazy upgrades and all that stuff. So I think we, we stand out in that way um, in, in the market. 
So you recently announced $40 million Series B round of funding. So talk about the fundraising process in the midst of a pandemic. <laughs> so. Yeah. Um, look, in some ways, it ends up being uh, good because there was no travel involved. Um, we got to do it all over Zoom. We were really fortunate that in the Series A process last year, which was led by Bessemer, we'd gotten to know a bunch of investors during that process and after that process. Um, and I think we've we've just been lucky to get to know a bunch of really smart people in our industry. And so, you know, I, I feel for the entrepreneurs who are trying to raise like a seed round right now, I think it's really hard if you're just starting out and you don't know anyone, and then you're trying to do that all remotely. Um, for us, what it meant was that we were going to try to, um, we, we only were willing to go to a small group of investors where we'd gotten to know them um, and ideally where they'd been providing a bunch of value uh, like VCs do or, or, or want to do. So we kind of picked five or six firms where we'd gotten to know them, really liked the partners there and or where they'd kind of been making really high value um, introductions to customers or to uh, you know people to join the team in the meantime. We felt like, okay, we know them, we know how they work. This could potentially be a really good partner. And we ended up only you know, really looking at, uh, we were super lucky our business grew like crazy in the last year and then you know, sort of to compound that, the pandemic ended up being sort of a slight net benefit for us. And so all of those forces just meant we were able to run a really tight, um, like two week process end to end where we just, we were, we were really lucky. We found kind of our, our dream investor to go for it and, and, um, and it worked out really well. Well, I think that's, that's great feedback for other entrepreneurs. It's, um, you were focused on uh, raising capital, even when you weren't raising capital. So you are building relationships with potential lead investors because you always want someone else to lead the next round, typically, not always. But so you were already making the, you know, establishing these relationships ahead of time so that regardless of what the economy was when you raised, they knew your business, you knew them. So that dating period to hopefully getting a term sheet or married was already established. That's right. And we weren't, what we weren't doing, we didn't take, there were three or four or five months where we didn't take any investor calls or meetings at all. So we had a ton of inbound and we just said like, I'm so sorry, we're, you know, we, we were growing the business. We were, first of all, we were managing the pandemic and what that meant from a, you know, survival perspective from um, our employees being happy and healthy and productive, working remotely. We were heads down. We were also growing, you know, doubling our client base, which is just a ton of stuff going on. And so we really couldn't take the time out to get to know a bunch of investors. But if they were, there were investors that we'd already known previously from the Series A, and they were not asking for a ton of time, but rather saying, hey, here's a candidate that I think would be great for VP of marketing that I see you have open, or hey, I know this bank and I think they're looking to kind of, you know, digitally transform. Can I introduce you? Those are the ones that were clear signs to us. You're going to actually help build this business. You're not here just to, you know, take up a bunch of our time. And so we were really thoughtful about who we actually spoke to in those um in those six months and it made it easier to kind of create a short list of who we wanted to attract in this round of funding now what's the current state of the company as far as number of employees and what are your plans in terms of hiring and, and growth ahead sure we just hit 50 um employees last week and uh we're continuing to grow so i think probably by the time this is out we'll we'll have more people um on board we uh are investing pretty heavily right now in 
sales and marketing in particular, which has just been um, an area where we've we've done very well with uh, you know being being efficient, but really kind of like too efficient. So this is where we're kind of throwing some fuel on the fire and saying, hey, let's go you know scale this out. We we hired our first um, sales folks in January and February this year, up and running really quickly, very talented, and now we're we just feel like we we have room to do more. Um, and then on a product perspective we're kind of going deeper into these client relationships and saying, where else are you um, making decisions about identities? So, you know, it's right now we've been making mostly this one decision where user is applying and we're saying yes, no, maybe to whether or not they should be able to open an account. But where can we help you make these decisions around things like, should they be allowed to on, uh, enroll in online and mobile banking right now on the device they're on? Should we let them do this $5,000 wire transfer to Russia that we've never seen them do before? all sorts of things that they're making these decisions about throughout that life cycle and helping them um, make better and more instant decisions, which is, again, it sounds, <laughs> a lot of this stuff sounds trivial and financial, you know, like it should already exist, but just the bar is so low um, in, in uh, financial services, sadly. And do you think you'll end up tackling other industries too? It seems like a logical type of platform that could be outside of, you know, financial services, banking. I think we'll go outside of banking into things like insurance. I don't, we, we have found that financial services is a, is a unique opportunity because one, the market is so large and the problems are so acute um, and, and expensive candidly. Two, the problems are actually pretty unique. So it's really hard to take an e-commerce solution and apply it to financial services. Um, and, and so we, we think going deep on in financial services and sort of the unique needs there when it comes to everything from the types of data you're leveraging to the regulatory environment to just the culture, candidly, of, of these places. I think it's actually a huge asset to stay really focused. And so for us, we have no plans to go outside of um, financial services. Never say never, but, you know, that's, that's how we think about it today. Well, like you said, it's a huge market. I mean, just a massive, massive opportunity to build a standalone, you know, giant company in, in that sector alone. Now, uh, one of the things that I noticed was uh, when I was on your website and was looking at your team and you have all the little team listed on your on your uh, About Us page that it was a very diverse uh, team as a whole. And, you know, this is on the radar for most companies as it should be on building a diverse and inclusive workforce. So, so how did you think about that when you were building Alloy from the early days and continue that process to where you are now? Yeah, so, you know, I'll be honest, in the early days, I think we acted like every other company does, which is that you're desperate enough for anyone to join your team, that you just do whatever is easiest and in front of you and maybe your buddies from college or whatever. So in the early days, I was the only woman for a while, um, all white team, you know, it was, it was not particularly diverse. It was something we always had in the back of our minds and it's advice people always give you is like, build, do it early, do it early, do it early. But again, when you're just caught up day to day and you just need to like, get an engineer onboarded, you know, yesterday, you'll just do whatever. You, you're not willing to sort of take the time to find the best possible person or candidate pool. Eventually, um, we did focus more and more on it and it has paid off tremendously. So we made some hires. Um, I think we've been we've been particularly good at uh, attracting, recruiting and hiring women on our team. So we're almost half, almost 50% women, I think today, it fluctuates kind of week on week, depending on, on the growth. Um, but 
what happened is that once we made a couple of other uh, women, you know, hires to the team, it just gets much easier. So the next time that there's a woman interviewing, they go into the office and they see other women there and it's much higher likelihood that they're gonna have a really good interviewing experience. That was the feedback we kept getting. It was like, oh, thank God there's some other women in this, this office. Um, and then they know other women too, or they're part of you know, women in FinTech groups or whatever it is, that's been really, really helpful for us and made it so much easier. And so of course, it's the advice everyone gives, but if I could go back in time, I would listen to it um, much more seriously and realize building it early really makes a huge difference. We still have our work to do, particularly on kind of racial diversity. Um, we, it's, it's a big focus of ours as it is for many other companies. Um, but I don't know that the advice is particularly different other than just do it as early as you possibly can. Um, take it seriously. We're lucky to have a fantastic director of people operations, Kim Nguyen, where she just is relentless about ensuring that we stay disciplined. So if we try to deviate a little bit from kind of our guiding principles and, our, and the way that we're operating when it comes to recruiting and hiring talent, she keeps us honest. She you know, owns the process. And um, and we've given her the, the kind of bandwidth and resources to do that. And I think that's been hugely successful. The thing I really want to see more of, and I think we would do better if this was asked of us, is have our board and our investors ask us to report on diversity the same way that we do our, you know, our financials, our revenue, all that kind of stuff. So I think that's the thing that really needs to change is that investors and then ultimately their LPs need to be, you know, asking for this regularly and treating it as a really important metric. That's, that's great, great feedback. Yeah, that's definitely something where, you know, was Google the first one to report their diversity numbers? I think they, if they weren't the first, they were mm. one of the first and yeah. eye-opening. Uh, and th I think this was going a few years back now. But yeah, if startups were able to report their diversity numbers to their board and the board's reporting it to the VCs, the, you know, the VCs reporting it to the LPs, it just creates that yeah. whole ecosystem of a chain effect. Yeah. There's only a few things that they're looking at. There's only a few things that they're caring about, right? That are kind of bubbling up to the top. Um, and this should be one of them. If, if, if we're going to take it seriously, if we're actually going to care about it, I think there's a ton of lip service being paid to it. Maybe we don't ultimately care. And this is just sort of a PR thing. Um, but if we're going to truly take it seriously, that's, I think, me, one of the only ways to ensure it's, it's adhered to and ensure it's, it's successful. So as a consumer, I always get weirded out and it became part of the normalcy of our world of you know you would hear on these you know uh different um security issues where everyone's credit scores are leaked or in credit card numbers or or social security coverage so like equifax equifax right equifax so when was, yeah so so what can consumers do as it relates to protecting your own identity because that's what freaks me out like where i'm becoming immune yeah. to all these massive data fraud issues. So, but what should yeah. I be thinking about? Gosh, so I wish, um, I would like my own kind of consultant here too. I think it's, it's changing so fast, right? Like every new data leak changes something, every new database changes something. So um, I'm no expert here, but I think starting with the assumption that your data is already out there is a fairly safe one. So I think like assume that Equifax revealed a bunch of stuff about you. Don't assume that you're you're safe from that. And if you take that assumption, I think realizing who has access to really sensitive data means that you can they can get into a lot of places. And so changing the sort of access points wherever you can, whether that's two-factor authentication, um, 
better passwords, obviously, and, and that's something I put off for a very long time, and now I'm glad I've done it. Like, it, it's an annoying exercise, but really making sure that you have sort of as many sort of barriers of, of access, knowing that someone has your Equifax report with your SSN and your DOB and all that stuff right on it is important. Um, you can, of course, control who you're giving access, like who, where you bank and all of that stuff. Um, but ultimately, I think it's too hard as a consumer to, to sort of think that way or to even know what security precautions are being taken. So you just have to be as vigilant as you can on the, the access points themselves, unfortunately. Yeah, no, it's it's scary out there when you say, you it's pretty safe to assume that your information's out there. <laughs> so. It's it's so true, but it's how it's how I operate. I just now assume everyone knows my social security number. Like what? Who, oh, Apple has the commercial out there. That's you know people that are just saying things that they probably wouldn't say. You know their social security number yeah. and all these different identity things. That uh, so you can see it's good that Apple's putting a commercial out there for your benefit. Actually. Yeah, <laughs> it's a good point. Thank you, Apple. All right. So, what are the three apps that you can't live without? Right now, um, I have to say eBay is one of them because I'm pregnant and buying all sorts of baby stuff, but I hate buying you I hate buying new stuff and it's also expensive and garbage. And so I've been um kind of buying like hoarding all my baby purchases on eBay. Um uh I one password I use quite a bit. So this is goes back to your last question. I highly recommend one password. I think it's um it's a, it's a great, it took me a little, I actually had to have a couple people at Alloy show me how to use it. I felt like my mom. Um, but once I, once I did that, once I sort of figured it out, it's been really good. And now I'm like, everything feels much more secure for me. Um, and then um, I'd say my, my FinTech app of choice is Aspiration, which is a uh, neobank that uh, has, is not investing your money in things like fossil fuels and stuff. So they have sort of a, a good corporate profile for being a bank or being a new bank at least. What about uh, podcasts or books that you would recommend? Yeah. Um, I, I, with no travel anymore, my podcasting time is a little bit more limited. Um, I love the slow burn podcast by Slate. They did one about the Nixon um, about Watergate a couple years ago. Then they did the Bill Clinton impeachment trial. And then they've most recently done one about David Duke, which I think are just excellent. Um, and uh, I really enjoyed Dolly Parton's America, which was a, a kind of short but really good little series. And then pretty regularly, I listened to the Conan O'Brien podcast as well, which I think is fun and, and good during lockdown. Oh, he's the best. I, I love listening to this yeah. podcast too. Yeah, it's really fun. And you need to check out Ozark. I'm surprised that you haven't actually watched that. I know. I, I will. I will. It's on, it's on my list. It's uh, like, you know, there's a couple series that I am absolutely like, one, you know, must watch TV. That was one of them. I just, the first episode just brings you right in and it's, you know, aligned with your business too somewhat. So. Oh, that's good. That's great. Yeah. I, I, I need to, uh, I do need to, to watch that. Well, Laura, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your background, all the great things that Alloy is up to. And, you know, here's to building a great pillar fintech company in the New York tech scene and um, all the great advice for other entrepreneurs to follow. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me.
Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.